I'm ready, brother. All right, All right. let's do it. Well, 30 and nine seconds. <laughs> so welcome today on this beautiful day. Glad you can make it through the terrible weather we're having to get here. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Keeps up like this, we'll have to eat out on the patio or something. Yeah. So last week, oh, before we start, too, um, this past weekend, just a, a number of you donated. So I wanted to let you know I did the, we did the tapping out, kicking out cancer at uh, Leadership Martial Arts, and a number of you in here donated to help us raise money. We raised over $4,000 for Levine Children's Hospital. And so that money will go straight to uh, them for their pediatric cancer research. So it was really cool. Really tiring, uh, but it was good. And so thank you to those of you that donated. So let's get back into, we finished, we almost got through Leviticus chapter 7 last week. Check chapter 6 and 7. We did two, two chapters at once, so we got through the bulk of it. And it was a one last review of the sacrifices that had been covered in the first five chapters. Remember, Leviticus, the first five chapters are nothing but here are the sacrifices that you're going to offer in this thing that I've given you, which is the tabernacle. It's, we just take these things for granted. We take for granted the fact that a temple and a tabernacle existed and people did sacrifices. For Israel, this was all new. They had come out of Egypt. They had come out of a pagan polytheistic culture. They were going into Canaan, which was an even more pagan and more polytheistic culture. And they were being given the means by which they would relate to God for their history. So <clears throat> there are things that are similar. There are things that are different. The concept of sacrifice was everywhere in the world. Every culture in human history has had some form of sacrifice or another. There's an innate sense within humanity that we are not right with the deities or deity or whoever. And that we need to do something to make that right. That's just across humankind in every culture. And... So what God does is he steps into that and he says, Here, here's how this is going to work. Here's how you're going to offer these sacrifices. These sacrifices are not just given to God because he's a hungry God who demands offerings in order to be fed and kept satiated. They are the means by which Israel will provide food for itself, food for the priests, and in a way where the, the sharing of a meal will be something that has significance, not just the means of survival. So... All of this is wrapped up in the sacrificial system and how they should do it and uh, who could do it and all of the stuff that we've covered for the past five weeks. Now at the end of chapter 7, verse 22, God gives final uh, directions specifically to the people and, and to the priests. It says, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, do not eat any of the fat of cattle, sheep, or goats. Fat of an animal found dead or torn by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but you must not eat it. Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which an offering by fire may be made to the Lord must be cut off from his people. Wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. If anyone eats blood, that person must be cut off from his people or will be cut off from his people. There's, there's a question whether that's a command, like cut them off from the people, meaning banish them or whether that is a prediction or, or a judgment by God. If you do this, I will cut them off from the people. In other words, I will see to it that their posterity does not survive after them, or that their name does not continue, or that they are denied eternal life. Uh, it could be any of those things. Their scholars are divided on what cut off from their people means. But what it's showing is that within the people of Israel, they're going to treat a couple of things as sacred. 
the fat of an animal, it doesn't mean that you have to go through and pull out every piece of meat and pull out every strain of fat in it. What it means is the specific parts of the fat of the offering that have been talked about already. Okay, so it's not just, oh, this is a little fatty, this meat's a little fatty, I can't eat that. No, this is that, the sacrificial fat of an animal, which was seen as the choicest part or the sweetest part, or some cultures saw it as having ritual significance or whatever. God's saying, no, you're not going to eat that part. That part's mine. Same thing with blood. Blood is symbolic of life in Scripture. Blood is symbolic of life. And God is the only one who has the right, who has sovereignty over life. In ancient cultures, there's all kinds of things you could do with blood ritualistically that would um, either bring blessing or bring curse on somebody you didn't like or all these kinds of magical rites and rituals and this and that. And what God's saying is you're going to be different. You're not going to do the things they did in Egypt. You're not going to do the things they do in Canaan. You're going to be different. So these two stipulations on what you can eat are going to undergird all of the sacrificial system um, and are going to keep in mind, keep at the forefront of their minds, that the choicest things and that the life of all things belongs ultimately to God. And he is the one who is sovereign over it. So then it gives final directions. The Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites, anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as his sacrifice to the Lord. With his own hands, he is to bring the offering made to the Lord by fire. He is to bring the fat together with the breast the wave, and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right tithe or fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. The son of, Aaron, son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their regular share from the Israelites. So the fellowship offering, remember, this was, this was the Hebrew Thanksgiving. This was the sacrifice that was brought to be eaten by people celebrating and, and enjoying fellowship, the peace offering. And what God's saying is, <clears throat> of all the fellowship offerings, every time you bring one, the, the breast of the animal, if it's a bird or if it's another animal, and the right thigh, those belong to the priest. Those are seen as two of the best cuts of meat, so to speak. And so what God has instilled in this for all time is that the priests who serve in the temple, they will not raise animals, they will not graze their uh, flocks, they will not have any land that they grow crops on. The Levites did not get any of that. That's huge. That could be seen as like one of the worst things about being a tribe of Levi is you don't have any land, you don't have any crops, you don't have any flocks, you, don't have, you won't have a part in the economy of Israel. So what God says is, yes, you will have a part. It will be through the other tribes coming and presenting their offerings to me, and a part of what's brought to me will be given to you. That is the compensation that God gave for those who he called primarily and, and full-time to minister at his altar. Paul will pick up on this multiple times in the New Testament. He'll point to this passage and others like it to show that those who labor for the gospel, those who minister, should be supported in God's economy by the people that they are ministering to. Now, it doesn't mean they should be enriched. It doesn't mean they should be made wealthy. It doesn't mean they should have their private jets or any of the other nonsense you hear. It means that they should be supported and they should be taken care of by those that they minister over. And this is something that Paul is explicit about in the New Testament, even as he denies that right to himself in order to set a good example. Paul chose not to receive compensation from congregations, but he argued vehemently that the other apostles should. 
So it's a principle, again, the, the law doesn't transfer to the New Testament. Like, we don't have sacrifices and priesthood. But the principle that undergirds the law is very evident in the New Testament. And that's how Old Testament ethics work for the Christian. We see in this the heart of God. The heart of God in this is that he wants the people ministering to be provided for by the people that they are blessing spiritually. I mean, he wants the people who have been blessed financially and have been blessed materially to in turn use that to support those who he has not blessed in that way. And so everyone is looking out for the interests of everyone else and everyone is provided for. So it's this really razor thin balance between the, the if you want to modernize it, between socialism and capitalism. Right? God, God comes into it and says, well, both of those taken to an extreme are wrong. There's elements of both in here in my kingdom. Yes, I want everyone looking out for everyone else and socialists cheer, yay. But I want people to create and have their own property that they then voluntarily share with others and the capitalists cheer, yay. So God brings both of those aspects to bear in his economy for his people under the old covenant. So our job as people in the new covenant then is now what of that applies in our setting today, in our churches, in our lives. So he goes on the undergirds at, at the end, verse 35. This is the portion of the offerings made to the Lord by fire that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. On the day they were anointed, and we're about to read about that day in the next chapter, the Lord commanded that the Israelites give this to them as their regular share for the generations to come. And then verse 37 is, is a recap of everything in the previous two chapters. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord in the desert of Sinai. That's what's called, the scholars call that a colophon. It's the ending of a passage. It's like if we put it at the beginning of our books, you know, like the title, and then there's a thing, this is who it was by, the author's name, and then this subject line is what it's about. Uh, a table of contents or whatever. Well, in ancient Near East, in the second millennium, that would happen at the end of a document. You would put that as sort of a recap, and that's what this is. This is, this is a literary style, how they did it back then. So then chapter 8 begins this next section, begins the day that it was just mentioned there. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gathered the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That phrase, Moses did as the Lord commanded him, is going to pop up seven times in this chapter. And that's not accidental. Uh, the priesthood is about to be bestowed upon Israel. They are about to be ordained. The Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Sinai covenant, is that the people who are going to oversee the daily life that's literally, physically at the heart of Israel, in the center of the camp, in the tabernacle, is going to be started. This is, this is a monumental period in Israel's history. They are about to receive priests for the first time. Up until now, Moses has been the only priest. And then Aaron, working on his behalf. So God says, gather everyone. This is going to be a public thing. It's not going to be private. It's not going to be the priests of Israel were not a secret caste. They did not have secret rituals that only the priests knew and that the laity were uninformed about. Uh, it was open. Everyone could see what was going on. The tabernacle curtains weren't like an impenetrable wall. They were short. 
purchase. I mean, you, you stood a couple of you know yards away or whatever, you could kind of see over and see what's going on in there. Um, God is, is doing this in the sight of all the people. So he gathers them in front of the tent of meeting, in front of the tabernacle. Moses said to the assembly, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward. He washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the effort on him. He also tied the effort to him by its skillfully woven waistband, so it was fastened on him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and the thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred diadem, on the front of it as the Lord commanded Moses. First thing he does, he dresses the high priest. Now, we've covered this back in Exodus 29, for those of you that were here. If you weren't here, we video it each week. So go back on the website, look at the video, Exodus 29. When describing these garments, we saw that the garments of the high priest were symbolic of the heavenly man. They were symbolic of the man who could enter into the Holy of Holies, could enter into the presence of God. His robe was skillfully woven. It was bright blue. It symbolized the sky, the heavens from which where God dwells. Uh, it was made of the same material as the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the tabernacle itself, symbolizing that the priest is entering into the presence of God, and he also takes the presence of God with him wherever he goes throughout the tabernacle. So there's a lot of significance and symbolism in this. All these garments, all these kutra uh, that we've heard about so far, now they're being put on. And Aaron, for the first time, is no longer Aaron, Moses' brother, but he's Aaron, the high priest of Israel, the heavenly man, the one who will go and stand before God in his very presence and represent the people, and then go and represent God to the people when he leaves the Holy of Holies. And the first thing that he does, first thing that's done with Aaron and his sons is they're washed. They're washed. The, the word for this in Greek, if you want to describe it, you would say they're baptized. That's it. So the washing comes first, then the ordination to ministry. This will have ramifications in the New Testament when we see that, that all believers are now the priesthood. All believers enter into the priesthood. And so all of us, in a sense, are, are called to do in our own capacities, what Aaron was called to do for Israel. And what is the first thing we do as Christians? We're washed. We're baptized. All right? Now, was he sprinkled? Was he dunked? Doesn't matter. He doesn't say. He was washed. The amount of water has far less to do with the act in itself is symbolic. So, Moses, uh, verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil, that oil in Exodus that no other kind could be made, but the stuff that was to, to characterize the smell of the high priest and of the inner tabernacle. That stuff, the stuff that was described in detail. Moses uh, took the anointing oil, anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. He then brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, put headbands on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. So now they've been anointed. They've had oil put on them. The tabernacle itself has been anointed. That, that word, the, um, the Hebrew word for this is the word that we get Messiah from. It's Mashiach, to anoint. To anoint prophets, priests, kings. 
And, and in, in time in the Old Testament, this would be seen as there would be one who would come one day who would be the capital M, Mashiach. The one who was anointed above all. He would be the Messiah, or in Greek it would be the Christos, where we get Christ from. Christ was not Jesus' last name, it just means the Messiah, anointed one. So whenever you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus, the anointed one. That's what Aaron was. He was anointed first as the high priest. And then his sons were also consecrated, set apart, made sacred to do this office. Verse 14, he then presented the bull for the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the bull and took some of the blood. And with his finger, he put it on all the horns of the altar, purified the altar. He poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. So he consecrated it to make atonement for it. Moses took all the fat from around the inner parts, the covering of the liver, both kidneys and their fat, and burned it on the altar. But the bull with its hide and its flesh and its offal, he burned up outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. The first sacrifice that had to be made was the sacrifice for Aaron's sins and the sins of this, his sons. Before the priests could be in, uh, before the priests could carry out atonement for anyone, their sin had to be atoned for. So Moses was the high priest for Aaron and his sons in this first initial sacrifice, the first sacrifice ever done in this new thing called the tabernacle was to cleanse Israel's priesthood, to anoint and to atone for the sins of Israel's priesthood itself before anybody else's could be atoned for. Verse 18, he then presented the ram for the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Then Moses slaughtered the ram and sprinkled the blood against the altar on all sides. He cut the ram into pieces, burned the head, the pieces, and the fat. He washed the inner parts and the legs with water and burned the whole ram on the altar as a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that their sin has been atoned for, now comes the normal, regular sacrifices, the whole burnt offering. This is the first one we saw, Leviticus chapter 1. So the whole burnt offering is put as the foundational sacrifice upon which all the others would come. It's the only one that's entirely devoted to the Lord through fire. All the rest are uh, eaten in part by the priests or the people offering them. Verse 22, he then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the loads of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he sprinkled blood against the altar on all sides. He took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat around the inner parts, the covering of the liver, both kidneys, their fat, and the right thigh. Then from the basket of bread made without yeast, which was before the Lord, he took a cake of bread, one made with oil and a wafer. He put these on fat portions in the right thigh. He put all of these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and waved them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as an ordination offering, pleasing aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. He also took the breast, Moses' share of the ordination ram, and waved it before the right ear and the right thumb and the right big toe. The most probable symbolism in that is this was basically communicating to them that they are, everything that they do, everything that they say, everything that they are is going to be covered by the blood of these sacrifices. So their right ear, they will hear God's word. That's what 
the, the, the Shema, what Israel says every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That verb hear, to listen. Whenever God says in the Old Testament to obey, that verb obey almost always is the verb listen. To listen would mean to obey in, in Hebrew. So he puts it on the right ear, on the right thumb, their hands. What they do with their hands, the work of their hands is dedicated to God entirely and is consecrated by this blood. And then on their right toe, wherever they go, wherever they walk, they walk in the steps of the priesthood. So their whole body, the parts for the whole, uh, is symbolized by this rite that they're doing. So instead of literally drenching them in blood like the movie Carrie, which would be gross, they put a little bit of blood on the symbolic parts of their anatomy to show that they are doing that, that they are covering themselves or covering the priesthood in this blood. So everything they do is going to be wrapped up in representing God to the people and representing the people to God. They are the conduit through which holiness will pass in Israel. They're the buffer which will protect the people from God's holiness because a, a sinful people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God without being overcome. So God is doing all of these things, putting it in place. Their, their role in, this, in society is changing. They're fundamentally, a new thing is being brought into existence. Then Moses took, verse 30, then Moses took some of the anointing oil, some of the blood from the altar, and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on their garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. Now they're consecrated literally by having the blood and the sacrifice oil sprinkled on them. So their robes, is, as clean as they were, they would always have the stain of blood on them. Because blood doesn't come out when you wash it. And this is before detergent. So in the ancient world, it really didn't come out when you washed it. So the robes would always have the stain of the blood of this initial sacrifices that they would carry around. And these robes, these, these vestments would be passed on to their offspring. It, it, it wasn't like, you know, you go buy a new ephod and a new high priestly robe. No, you wore the one that was passed on from the high priest before you. So this is all of this is heavily, heavy with symbolism that would be permanent. Moses then said to Aaron and his sons, cook the meat. This is from that last offering that they get. Cook the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread from the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying Aaron and his sons are to eat of it. Then burn up the rest of the meat and the bread. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for your ordination will last seven days. What has been done today was commanded by the Lord to make atonement for you. You must stay at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and do what the Lord requires. That's what the NIV says. The literal Hebrew of that phrase says, and guard what is being guarded of the Lord. The NIV turns that into do what is required. But literally God says, stay at the tent of the entrance and guard the things that are to be guarded. So their role is... That, that phrase, guard, and, and the concept of seven days, and the residing at the entrance, which is to the east of this tabernacle, and the tabernacle being surrounded on four sides by the four walls, the four curtains, and the imagery of, of eating together. And inside the tabernacle, there's the menorah, which is shaped like a tree. All of this imagery is not accidental. This is all Eden imagery. This is all creation imagery. These seven things that were done as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, 
the reader would go back in their minds to, and God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. They'd go back to the creation account. They would hear the creation account taking place in this pattern of seven that the creation account is given. So God is very highly symbolically recreating the world. There's a new creation that's taking place. A new creation is being brought about in the midst of Israel. And it's this through the specific and explicit resonances back to the original creation. A new Adam is being brought into being who will be put in the garden to work it and to guard it, which is the terms that were used of Adam in Genesis, are now the terms that are used of the priests in the tabernacle. So this new type of humanity, God's plan for Israel is for them to be the means by which he reaches the nations in the world. He's going to, uh, the plan is for, for what went wrong with Adam to be put right with the new Adam. That's God's plan. And Israel is now called to step into this role. And the priests specifically in Israel are called to be this new Adam, this new human within the world. And to radiate out God's holiness to a world that's fallen and sinful. And to be the means by which the world turns back from their idols, back from the created myths and the created uh, religions that they've all embraced, and turn back to the one true God who started it to begin with. This is the plan. This is what's going on. And this is what Israel is going to fail at doing. They are not going to be the new Adam. They're going to fail repeatedly over and over. And the problem will remain throughout the Old Testament. How will God recreate the world when the means by which he was going to do it, Israel, are themselves infected by the sin that's the problem? And the New Testament gives us the solution. The Old Testament gives us hints and glimpses how God's going to do it. It's going to involve one like the Son of Man. Uh, it's going to involve the suffering servant who's going to take the sins of Israel upon himself. It's going to involve a priestly king. Someone who will combine the office of priest and king in his own self. All of these hints, all of these glimpses, it's going to involve a new covenant where God gives people a new heart and takes out their heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that he can move them to follow his commandments. And it's going to involve God putting his spirit inside people. And so that rather than the blood of bulls and goats being offered day after day after day, which don't do anything to get to the root of the problem, there's going to be one final perfect sacrifice who will be offered once and for all, which will take care of the problem at its core. See how all of this is laying the groundwork for what's going to happen in the New Testament. And Israel is going to be called to this vocation to be a light to the nations, to be a city on the hill, to be a true vine that bears fruit, and all of those things are going to fail over and over and over. And then eventually one of them is going to step forward who is the true vine, who is the true Israel, who is the true anointed high priest, and he's going to do what Israel couldn't do. So all of this is being pre, uh, uh, prefigured throughout this symbolism, this richness. But we're at the point right now where it's promising. We're at the point where Israel is being called and given their vocation. The priests are being ordained. And God's making it very clear. These, the, I'm starting over through you. I'm starting over. I'm, I'm reaching the nations. And what goes on in this tabernacle is going to be an essential part of your role in reaching the nations. All of this is hinged, hinges on Genesis 12. Those of you that were here with us way back two and a half years ago when we were in Genesis 12, 
Remember, I said, underline Genesis 12, highlight it, circle it, put it in italics, do whatever you're going to do. But know that Genesis 12 is the blueprint for the whole rest of the Bible. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is how this plan is unfolding. So it's not just about God wanted sacrifices. God was so by the book. He wanted everything done perfectly. Had to do all these rituals, blah, blah, blah. Let's just get to the New Testament when Jesus takes care of all that. That's the cheap, lazy American Christian way of doing things. We want to have deep-rooted biblical theology. And we want to understand that the Hebrew Bible, 77% of our Bible, is paving the way for what happens in the New Testament. So it would be just as silly to say, I want to study Shakespeare. Let me get to Act 4 of this play. No, you read the first three acts first. You understand what's going on in those. Then you can appreciate what happens in Act 4. So the more we see what the priesthood symbolized, the more we see the things that Israel was falling short of. And the more we see the things that Jesus comes on the scene and does. And then when you read all those epistles in the New Testament that are explaining it, then the dots start connecting. So you read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is going to talk a lot about Jesus as the high priest. If you don't know about this priesthood and the sacrifices, Hebrews won't make as much sense. It will just be a book that you kind of skim through because your small group did it for a couple of weeks. And that's really all you remember. But when you understand the Old Testament and you read the book of Hebrews, then it's just like, wow, this is deep. Talk about connecting the dots. This person is spelling out how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And not just the fulfillment, but the increase, the, the exponential increase of all these things. Jesus is not just Moses or Aaron 2.0. He's a whole new operating system. He's a whole new hard drive. He's a whole new technology. But it's, but it's built on the pattern that came before. He's doing the things. So remember, the Old Testament, salvation was not different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Israel didn't do the sacrifices in order to get saved. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a stereotype that's been around since Martin Luther's days. Israel was already saved. They were already out of Egypt. These sacrifices and this system was how they should live out that salvation. That's what God gave it for. So again, the salvation was already there and it was by faith. It was of the heart. It was a matter, all of these sacrifices would be meaningless if the person presenting the sacrifice didn't really care. And that's what the prophets get on to Israel for over and over and over. God says stuff like, I hate your sacrifices. I despise your festivals. I don't want to even hear your singing. God says this through the prophets because Israel takes what should have been a heart issue that, that is expressed outwardly and turn it into an outward thing that you don't have to put your heart into. As long as I get the sacrifices, this Yahweh guy's happy. And he stays off my back. And that's what God says. No, 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 that's never been the plan. Old Testament and New Testament, salvation by faith, always. Old Testament and New Testament, true salvation will result in works according to God's law. Works don't save. But salvation doesn't happen without works as a result. So it's a balance that we have to walk. We have to be very careful. But it's in both Testaments, plain as can be. Um, so, the priests have been ordained. They've been consecrated. Ordained, literally, that verb to ordain, literally, the Hebrew is to fill the hands of. So whenever somebody says they're getting ordained, what they're doing is they're, get, they're about to have their hands full. <laughs> and any pastor will tell you that's 100% correct. 
But that's what ordination is. Moses literally puts the offering in their hands. And he takes their hands and they do a wave offering to the Lord. Not wave like this, but wave as in present it to God and then receive it back from God. It's a wave offering. They receive back now this office of ministry. They eat this meal together because when a covenant was made, it would be ratified by eating a meal together. And then God says, now wait here for seven days. For seven days, you're not to leave. There's all kinds of things in the Bible that take seven-day periods of time. Different purification rites, um, you know, childbirth, there's seven days and then the child circumcised. When there's marriage, there's seven days and then the marriage is celebrated, consummated, and that's when they, what we would consider the wedding takes place. Um, there's seven-day rituals are all throughout. This is a time of transformation. It's a time of recreation. It's a time something new is being brought into being whenever there's a seven-day wait. So God's telling them this, and then the warning he gives them, do not leave until this is complete, or you'll die. So it's not just, a, just an honor, but it's also a heavy responsibility. So next week, we'll look at the first thing that they do as, as priests. Now that their sins are told for, they're ordained. Now they can minister to the people, and it's going to be pretty spectacular next week. So come back, but we're out of time now. So have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week.